We write a prescription, not thinking where the idea for the medication came from in the first place, or how it made the tortuous journey to the retail market. But today, we're going to find out. You're listening to Reach MDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, your host, and with us today is Katie McFarlane, uh, Dr. Katie McFarlane, uh, President and CEO of Zintria Pharmaceutical Corporation. Welcome, Katie. Thank you. We are talking about pharmaceuticals and how they get to market, and it's a pretty expensive proposition. Certainly is. Certainly is. So... Let's talk about the FDA. And, of course, nobody from the FDA is listening, I promise you, and they won't get in trouble for this. So what do you think about the FDA? Too much regulation? Too little regulation? It's very funny because I actually have some very good friends who have worked for the FDA at some point in their career. And in general, you know, I think the FDA, it is true what they will tell you in that they are overburdened. There is more work than they truly have the personnel to handle. And this is even in light of having the um, user fees that pharmaceutical companies pay when they submit an NDA. What is that user fee with an NDA? It actually depends on the size of your company, believe it or not. There are different fees. For example, if a little tiny company didn't have much money, came up with a pharmaceutical that you know really was going to be a big advance, they're not charged the same user fee as a, a big pharma company. Um, and I can't remember what the cutoffs are, but the user fees range anywhere from 300000 to $600,000 per NDA that's filed, which most of the drugs that you're probably familiar with have carried the $600,000 user fee on them. And that user fee was put in place back in the 90s by FDA to help staff more personnel to review drug submissions and applications. And it has worked. It's been very effective in reducing the review time on pharmaceuticals. Now, when you submit your NDA and you've paid your user fee, basically what happens, you submit the NDA and the date that the FDA receives it starts the clock ticking. What they will commit to you is that within 12 months, you will have a response. Now, what they do is is all along the way, they work very hard to be in contact with your regulatory group and your medical group. Um, So you get an idea of where they are in the review process. They start having questions going back and forth. There's a whole process of reviewing the package insert, the drug labeling, all of those items are reviewed so that hopefully by the time you reach that 12-month mark, what you're receiving from the FDA is either a final approval or an approvable letter, and you might just have a few you know, last things that you have to sort of sweep up to get approved. So that's what the user fee has, has done. I think they've taken the average review time um, for a drug, well, you know, the average time now being around 12 months, it used to be something. Oh, wait, now is this a review from the time you've done all your research? Or yes. For, okay. Now, the research itself, from first going into man to filing the NDA, it usually takes about seven years. That's kind of the average um, time to getting an NDA submitted. And that is where the really serious money gets spent um, in clinical trials. Doing phase three clinical trials in particular is enormously expensive. And, you know, so you're talking hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, anywhere probably between three and $500 million, or excuse me, between about four and $600 million is spent to get a drug through the phase three process. So, you know, by the time that NDA is submitted, it's hugely expensive. And one thing that a lot of people don't know is that over half the NDAs that get submitted never get approved. So there are drugs that make it that far that do not get approved. Um, and that's obviously, a, a, you know, a huge expense to the pharmaceutical companies. Um, and it's just because of, you know, under the review from FDA, they've, they discover a safety issue. That's the most likely reason. 
or the decision can be made that, that the benefit of, that the drug offers does not outweigh the risk that it holds. Okay, hundreds of millions of dollars. Who's getting that? The universities that are testing it? A large part of it goes there. The the costs of clinical trials come down to, and, and usually you boil them down to a per-patient cost. And so the physicians themselves that are conducting the trials, if they are an independent practitioner, for example, and they do clinical trials right in their office, and I would say there's very few doctors that can successfully do this because you really need a staff. You have to have someone on staff to handle all the paperwork because the paperwork is enormous. And so those physicians would receive you know, money that would pay for the patient visits, the medication is paid for, and of course, their time then to complete all the paperwork and cover any testing that has to be done. There's a large amount of money that has to just go into the laboratory analyses. If you have studies, for example, that require EKGs, they typically have to be read by two independent sites. So now you have you know, two doctors reading every EKG. Sometimes if there's an invasive procedure involved in a study where a sample has to be taken or a biopsy or something like that, that's very expensive. And just the laboratory analysis itself, um, because so many labs are done, uh, is very, very expensive. And then there's an enormous amount of expense on the technology side to take all the data, incorporate it into a database that can be continually referred to and used for all the statistical analysis and reporting. Even a a small, simple study, you can spend easily a million dollars just on the data part. Oh, I understand. Yeah, it's it's, it's an expensive endeavor. (laughs) Okay. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Dr. Michael Greenberg, and I'm speaking with Katie McFarland, CEO of Zintria Pharmaceutical Corporation, about how pharmaceuticals go from idea to reality. Well, while I have you here, and I said, this is like my dream to have an intelligent pharmaceutical CEO on the other side of the microphone and ask whatever I wanted about how drugs get to market, how come vitamins and all the nonsense that we see for sale doesn't have the same regulation as real medications? How, how can they make the claims they do and get away with it? Yeah, it's a little frustrating to us as well. It really started with the passage of what's called the DSHEA Act, and that's the D-S-H-E-A, I believe. And it was passed in the late 90s and essentially provided for some, what I would call, loose oversight of products that are sold as health products in the U.S. And Basically, what the uh, Congress uh, mandated to happen here is that a differentiation was made between products that are making drug claims and products that are for health. And so, for example, if you wanted to have a drug on the market and you say that this drug reduces cholesterol, that's considered to be a health claim. And so you would have to go do clinical trials and, you know, file a drug approval with FDA, either for an over-the-counter or prescription use. And you'd be subject to all the, the, the tough testing. However, if you just want to, you know, put a concoction of (laughs) herbs together and put them in a bottle and put them on the shelf, as long as you only say that, you know, this is for heart health, for example, it's not considered a drug claim. And so pretty much you can say whatever you like, because these claims are seen as being innocuous. And um, and therefore, these are the things that get sold at the health food store. And, and, you know, gosh, they've penetrated now. I see them at Target and the grocery store and everywhere else. So as long as you say it's for health, it's really not a pharmaceutical claim. Exactly. Exactly. And I think the unfortunate part about this is, is that I think a lot of patients don't see the difference. Maybe the pharmaceutical industry ought to go on a patient advertising campaign to let them know this. 
Yeah, that would be interesting. You know, to date, uh, you know, the pharmaceutical companies obviously, you know, got started about 10 years ago pretty aggressively with advertising to consumers, and I think they've tasted success of it with um, with their prescription drugs. They have yet to gather together and, and do anything to go after other industries. I, I, I think there would be some hesitation to do that because it would look uh, like, you know, big bad pharma trying to beat up on the nice little health company. Right. Let's talk about direct-to-patient advertising. Mm-hmm. That's been pretty successful, hasn't it? It has. And I think at first people really sure if it was or not, but I think everybody's pretty well convinced now that, uh, that it does work and it's, it's effective. What do you think about it personally? I will tell you, as a pharmacist, I initially was very nervous about it um, because I thought it might, you know, drive patients to wanting to be on every drug that, you know, that came out even if they didn't need it. And then I thought, well, if patients get more educated about their drugs, maybe they'll take them more reliably, they'll know more about them. Ultimately, I do think it's had a good effect in that patients do, they're more aware and I think in general, they make more of an effort to know a little bit about their medications, particularly maybe younger patients. However, I certainly would be lying if I didn't say that I do think there are patients that probably go to their doctor and ask for drugs because they have a belief of what that drug does based on seeing a commercial and or hearing about it from a friend, which is an even bigger influencer. And I think that a lot of doctors are very reluctant to tell their patient no. Well, I think they're scared to tell their patient no because they'll change to another doctor. Yeah. I have to tell you, because I've actually done market research on this, particularly in the area of birth control, because I used to work at Warner Chilcott, and we sold several birth control pills. I can't tell you how many OBGYNs used to tell me emphatically that if they didn't give their patient the birth control pill they were asking for, they would go to another doctor. The funny thing is we conducted just as much research with patients And well over 95% of patients told us that they would always take their doctor's recommendation over what they saw on TV. Patients are more suspicious of what they see on TV than than I think sometimes we give them credit for. And they do still have a lot of respect for their doctor's opinion. And I think, you know, the doctors just have to have enough faith in their own capabilities and knowledge to say to that patient, this is really what I recommend for you. And they might get a frown, but... When that patient walks out, they'll feel like they really got some real advice that day. Well, I think it's also reasonable to say why this is why I recommend it for you. Exactly. You have to follow it up. You have to give them, you know, that extra 25 seconds of explanation. And then they're fine with it. You know, if if their doctor's saying, look, I don't think this is right for you because of this side effect or because of this characteristic of your disease, well, gosh, then they really feel like, boy, I, I really learned something today when I went to the doctor. So changing gears a little bit now to the future of pharma, uh, obviously we're in a changing climate where people are talking about a unified healthcare system. What do you think about the future of pharma? Where, where are we going to go? Are we going to, well, just where are we going to go? Yeah. It's a great question, and it's, it's one that is on the minds of senior management throughout the pharmaceutical industry. I think um, it's no mystery, obviously, that we've seen a lot of consolidation amongst the big pharma companies in the last 10 years. I think all the economists are predicting that we will continue to see that consolidation. Um, It's become very tricky because all these are, they're publicly traded companies with shareholders that expect growth. And in pharmaceuticals, growth is a very tough thing because you're relying on not just pure marketing or, you know, uh, a gimmick of coming up with, you know, the next flavor of soda pop. You actually have to come up with new drugs, which is a very risky and time-consuming process. So, I think one of the things that we're seeing more and more of are small specialty and biotech companies 
coming up with a lot of the innovations, employing a lot of the scientists that are doing a lot of the innovation work, and then those drugs are being sold to the big pharma companies, or the big pharma companies are, are swallowing up these biotech companies as a mechanism to get new pharmaceuticals that have already been at least minimally tested before they buy them. Because the pharma companies themselves are so large, and they have such a, a high growth goal to hit each year, they've got to start having a pretty reasonable idea that the drugs they're putting into the pipeline at least have a a good chance of making it. Katie, thanks for being my guest today and sharing the process of the birth and development of a pharmaceutical with us. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. The hosts, producers, and staff at ReachMD are here for you, the physicians who care for your patients. We value your questions and welcome suggestions for future shows. Tell us what you want and what you need. Send your email to xm at reachmd.com, and we truly thank you for listening. 